Radha Kundagiri Govardhan Akija, Vrindavan Dham Akija, Tura Dham Akija, Navadu Mayapur Dham Akija, Dharnapuri Dham Akija, Ganga Maiduna Devi Akija, Bhakti Devi Akija, Tulsi Maharani Akija, Samaveta Bhakti Vrindi Akija, Gaur Premanandri. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Sri Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Uta Parakamalam Sri Guru Vaishnavam Sri Sri Rupam Sagadar Tam Sagana Tam Vitam Sajina Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parichana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lavita Sri Vishakam Vitam Sri Jai Jai Sri Chaitanya Jaya Nichananda Jai Dwaita Chandra Jaya Gora Bhaktarinda It's April 20th, 2014 in Radadesh, Belgium. It's also Easter Sunday. And we're reading from Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita, Majalila, Chapter 27, The Process of Devotional Service. This is Mahaprabhu speaking to Sanatana Goswami. Text 141, and this is actually a verse from the 11th canto of the Bhagavatam, chapter 5, text 41. Devar Shibhu Tabta Nirnam Pitrinam Nakin Karonayam Rani Tirajan Sarvatmaya Sharanam Sharanam Sarvatmanaya Sharanam Sharanyam Thank <laughs> you. 
touches on one of the most controversial and difficult and misused areas in becoming a devotee of Krishna. And what it's about, just like if I want to balance this, what do I have to do to balance this? I have to find the... I have to find the... Not just middle, I have to find the... Center of gravity. Once I find the center of gravity then is the whole thing balanced? Or just the part that I'm touching? If I don't find the center, then nothing's balanced, yes? Yes? But once I find the center, is it all balanced? Translation in purport by One who has given up all material duties and taken full shelter at the lotus feet of Mukunda, who gives shelter to all, is not indebted to the demigods, great sages, ordinary living beings, relatives, friends, mankind, or even his forefathers who have passed away. Purport. It is said, 
Adyapanam Brahma Yagya Pritir Yagyashtu Tarpanam Homodaiva Balir Bodho Nir Yagya Titi Pujanam. By offering oblations with ghee, one satisfies the demigods. By studying the Vedas, one performs Brahma Yagya, which satisfies the great sages. Offering libations of water before one's forefathers is called Pritri Yagya. By offering tribute, one performs Bhuta Yagya. By properly receiving guests, one performs Nir Yagya. Anybody tell me some of these Yagyas? Nrinam, right? Anybody know what Nrinam is? Ordinary persons, and how do you satisfy your guests to ordinary persons? Prophet Sayyid. What do you do? Welcome guests. Okay. What about the Bhuta? Bhuta here is who? Again, ordinary living beings. And how do we do a yagya for them? How do we satisfy them? Feed them. Okay. And how do we satisfy the demigods? Fire sacrifices. How do we satisfy the Brahmins? Studying the demigods. These are, continue with the purport, these are the five yagyas that liquidate the five kinds of indebtedness. By the way, for those of you who don't have English as your first language, you do not say the B in the word debt. It is not debt, it is debt. You pretend the B isn't there. We have, English has some funny silent letters every once in a while, so just, just pretend that there's no B in that word, so it's debt, it's not debt. So these are the five yagyas that liquidate the five kinds of indebtedness. Indebtedness to the demigods, great sages, forefathers, living entities, and common men. Therefore, one has to perform these five kinds of yagyas. But when one takes to the Sankirtan yagya, the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra, one does not have to perform any other yagya. In Srimad Bhagavatam, Narada Muni made a statement about the systematic performance of Bhagavad Dharma, in connection with statements previously made by the nine Yogendras before Maharajnimi. The sage Karabhajana Rishi explained the four incarnations of the four Yugas, and at the end, in this verse, which is text 141, again, of chapter 5, Canto 11, he explained that the position of Krishna's pure devotees and how he is absolved of all debts. One who has given up all material duties and has taken full shelter at the lotus feet of Mukunda, who gives shelter to all, is not indebted to the demigods, great sages, ordinary living beings, relatives, friends, mankind, or even his forefathers who have passed away. So very nice verse. So now I'm chanting Hare Krishna and I don't have to be nice to anybody else. Yes? Is that what this means? I'm, I'm going, I'm, oh, I'm in the Sankirtan Yagya. My child's at home starving. My old father has nobody to take care of him and he's dying alone. Right. I'm not paying my bills. I'm not paying my taxes, but it's okay because I'm just sitting in the temple chanting Hare Krishna. Right? Is this what this verse means? Huh? Yes? That's what it means. Okay. We have confirmation from our elder here that that's what this was. I don't have to do anything else. Okay. So this is about finding balance. I mean, we're, we don't pay our debts to others just because we're supposed to. That's not the only reason we pay our debts. We also pay our debts because we desire to pay our debts. We feel very awkward 
By the way, if I talk too fast, just tell me. Or if I need to repeat something for you, just tell me. Not do that. Just like if someone owes you money. You ever had somebody owe you money? Yes? You want it back, generally speaking. Correct? You're thinking about, how can I get that money? And if you owe someone's mo- someone money, aren't you also thinking about paying it? Don't you think about paying it? It's normal. Right? If I owe you 20 euros and I'm thinking, how am I going to pay it? If I don't have the money, then I'm worried about getting the money. And if you owe me money, then when I see you, I say, um, you said you'd pay me that 20 euros a month ago. Where is it? So why do we do that? Why do we care? Because we're looking for balance. Of course, in different cultures, people look for balance in different ways. There's many different cultural ideas of gift-giving and, and debt, and the details of how one pays one's obligation is vastly different in different cultures. But the principle of having things fair, uh, sociologists have studied that this concept of fairness is a universal moral principle, although it manifests differently in different cultures. What's considered fair in one culture is not necessarily understood to be fair in another culture. So why are we looking for this fairness and this balance? What do you think is driving us that we want to have balance and, and fairness, that we don't want things to be off kilter? Why, why, do we, why is there a universal desire for that? Yes? It's the mode of goodness, yes. Which The fact that it's the mode of goodness, the word for goodness, sattva, also means what? Sattva doesn't much mean good, it also means sat, eternal, and being, existence. Is total existence fair and balanced? Is the whole of existence, is all of reality, is it something fair and balanced, or is it all off-kilter? It's very balanced. Everything is very balanced and, and fair. And this is the spiritual nature. So we as spiritual beings naturally want a situation of balance and harmony and fairness. When things are, are inharmonious and, and off-kilter, we become disturbed. And we want to set them back in balance. I mean, even in our own body, if think, we, we have a, a system in our inner ears that immediately wants to set things in balance. And whenever anything's off, we want to right it. So there's, there's, different, there's two main ways here we're looking at achieving balance. One is spiritual and one is material. So on, this, on the material level, one tries to create balance individually with all aspects. I try to create balance with my body. I try to have a balanced mind. I try to have balance with other living entities and fairness so that if somebody helps me, then I return the favor and everything is equal. I try to have a balance with the earth and so forth. Of course, there is one class of entities who intentionally put things out of balance and they are called demons. Demons want things out of balance because they want things in their favor. They want to be the center. They want to be the center. So they're, 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 they're still looking for balance, but they're trying, they think that they are the center of gravity. <laughs> they're, trying to, they're not really trying to balance things with others. They want everybody to be fair to them. So this concept of thinking that the way to find fairness is to settle everything with everybody individually was, is very much demonstrated by Karna. So as we know, Karna was the child of Kunti and the sun god, So pretty hard to have better parentage than Kunti, who was a princess, and the sun god, who's one of the chief devitas 
but his parentage was not known and he was raised by a servant. Because he was raised by a servant in those days, he didn't have much social mobility. They mostly had ascribed status rather than achieved status in society. So Karner wasn't allowed to participate in the games at the end of the graduation of the Pandavas. But then Duryodhan, seeing that here was possibly an ally for him against the Pandavas, came and said to Karna, you are now the king of Anga. I give you part of my property and I make you a king. Okay, now you're Kshatriya, now you can compete. And Karna said, I am so indebted to you. You've, you've changed my whole life. You've opened the door to everything that I wanted and that I couldn't get. All of my desires, all of my propensities, everything that was welling up inside of me that had no place for expression in the society in which I live, where I was blocked, you knocked down the block and you opened everything for me. Therefore, I owe you everything. I owe you my life. And I, will pay, I can pay this debt only by either giving you, literally giving you my life, or destroying your enemies. So later on, right before the Battle of Kurukshetra, Kunti came to Karna and revealed to him that she was his mother. And soon after that, Krishna came to Karna and said, you know, Kunti's your mother, and you could be considered the chief of the Pandavas. We could give the whole empire to you. Yudhisthira would give you the rule of the world. Simply surrender to me and follow me. And Karna said, I know you're God. I mean, how did Karna know that Krishna was God? Well, he had just seen the universal form that was shown to Duryodhana just shortly before this. He said, I know you're God, and I know that you're on the side of Dharma, and I know you're going to win. I know I'm going to lose. I know all that. But I have a debt to Duryodhana, and I have to pay that. And Krishna said, you already paid the debt to Duryodhana at the Battle of Virat. There's no need to pay it further. It's already paid. Karna said, I don't feel like it's paid. He gave me basically my life. I need to give him my life. Sorry, Krishna, come back later after I've paid my other debts. I have business to finish first. Even though I know you're God and I know you're right, I, I feel off balance. I feel that things are unequal. I need to find peace and balance by paying my debt to Karna. Now, what we're reading in the Bhagavatam section about Daksha giving the Hamsagriya prayers, a little bit further on, in this story, in chapter 5, Daksha is going to make a very similar argument to Narada Muni. He's going to say to Narada Muni, how dare you take my sons and have them become renunciates? He said they haven't paid their debts. They haven't paid their debts. They have to have children. Otherwise, how are they going to pay their debts? And he said if they surrender to the Lord without having paid their debts, the surrender won't be proper. It won't work. Um, Edna Marsh isn't here today, but he was, he's talked before about in his research in the Dharma Shastras, generally a person cannot take sannyas without having gone through all of the ashrams. And of course we can see in most cases that that's very logical. We've seen so many cases in our Hare Krishna movement where people try to take sannyas when they're 20 or 25, and they haven't yet settled their business. And so they can't do it, and then they come back, and I know I've got to come back and and take care of my business. Their mind is disturbed. So Daksha made this point. He says, if all their debts aren't complete, they can't surrender. They won't be able to surrender. It won't be proper surrender. And we also see people who think, the people who claim like the uh, feeding the poor, service to 
man is service to God. They call the poor Deridra Narayan, the poor Narayans. So they make this point. They say, well, really, the way you serve God is you be a good person in the world and you pay your debts in the world. So that's, this is a very prevalent philosophy that first I have to pay my debts. I have to be a good person, either first or along with. Either first or along with. So Karna was saying first. First I have to pay my debts, then I can think about surrender. And Daksha was kind of along with because he was also a devotee. Daksha was not, was not a demon. But he was thinking, along with worshiping God, I have to take care of all my material obligations. Right? And then we have the people who think the way to surrender to God is to take care of all your material obligations. And of course, we've seen in our Hare Krishna movement a, a pendulum swing. So in the early days of the Hare Krishna movement, we read verses like this and literally dropped everything. As in really, literally. Just, just dropped it. You know, I had a car. I just gave it to, to, back to my father. I didn't even think of giving the car to the temple, which is probably a very good thing, because the temple would have wrecked it, and my father, who had given me the car, would not have been happy. But my idea was just, okay, I just have to let go. Or we have one, one of our leaders in our movement now. He tells the story of how he was two weeks away from graduating from college, I think some sort of an engineering degree, and he just left. He said his mother practically went into the lunatic asylum. You know, that he left two weeks before graduation to move into the temple. And his wife liked Krishna, but she didn't want to fully surrender. She didn't want to move into the ashram and just go out on Sankirtan. And so he said goodbye to her also. So that was the, the general way that we behaved in the 60s and 70s and maybe somewhat into the 80s in the Hare Krishna movement. That we took these verses and said, goodbye. I have an occupation, goodbye. I have an education, goodbye. I have a wife, a husband, children, goodbye. I have parents, goodbye. I owe the, somebody money, goodbye. I'm joining the Hare Krishna movement. So we did that, and of course, you know, in many cases, as Daksha anticipated, that didn't work. I mean, in many cases where people after 10, 15 years said, ooh, and they started rummaging through the, the dumpster, and said, I don't know if I really wanted to throw this out. You know, maybe I should really... And now, now we've kind of switched the other way, where I see we tell people, don't move in the ashram. <laughs> it's really not a very good idea. And don't give up your education. You know, finish your education, get a good job, do everything in the world. And later, you know, when you're in your 50s and 60s, you can really think about moving. Yeah, don't we say this now? Yes. Even, even the parents... Right? The people who did this in the 60s and 70s now give their children opposite advice to what they did, generally speaking, is what we see. You see, they, they sell their... This is one of the reasons we have problems getting students at Bhaktivedanta College, quite frankly, is that many of the people who dropped everything in the 60s and 70s or 80s then look at their children and say, well, I don't even know if you want to go to a devotee college. Maybe even that won't be good enough. How are you going to take care of everything? How are you going to take care of your debts? You know, you've got to go to MIT, or you've got to go to Cambridge, or, you know, Bhaktivedanta College, who knows about that? So we have that, that kind of switch. And I give this example many times, that in 1976, when we were meeting with Srila Prabhupada, and, uh, is he still sitting on your lap? Or did he leave? Is he still there on your lap? 
No, he walked back. So my son was sitting on my lap there with Shula Prabhupada. We were meeting with Shula Prabhupada. He was like a year and a half old. And Prabhupada said, just like this mother is loving her son without any expectation of return, in the same way you should love Krishna. And my father asked Shula Prabhupada, will loving her son help her to love Krishna? And Prabhupada said, no. He said, but loving Krishna will help her to love her son. So, but now I hear many times people saying, you know, if you have a nice family life and you love your wife, you love your child, that will help you to develop love for Krishna. So yeah, I hear that we've kind of gone, you know, we went from, from one extreme, which many people, not everyone, but many people were not able to maintain, some were, to another extreme of practically, practically taking, you know, verging on taking doctor's philosophy so that there's a tendency when we hear verses like this to say, ah, well, Prabhupada says here in the end of this purport, um, this is the pure devotee. He explained the position of Krishna's pure devotee and how he's absolved of all that. So this only refers <clears throat> to devotees in prema and not to any of you. So just uh, this verse has nothing to do with any of us. Let's go back about our lives. So I see that there, there's a strong tendency when we, when we read these verses to take it that, well, they're true, but probably not for us. It probably doesn't have any relevance for us. We're all stuck in Daksha's view. So what's our real solution to this? What does this mean? How do, how do we apply this so that we're not either pious materialists or foolish fanatics? That's our question. So the issue comes when we see that when we surrender to Krishna, everything else is balanced. When we find the center of gravity, that everything else is balanced. And if everything else isn't balanced, then we haven't actually found the center of gravity. The symptom of finding the center of gravity is the whole thing is balanced. And therefore you don't need to balance things independently, but the whole thing is balanced. It's not that you surrender to Krishna and nothing else is balanced. That's because, first of all, a surrendered devotee is naturally a pious person. I was just hearing Prabhupada say that this morning. If you surrender to Krishna, you're naturally pious. Of course you're nice to guests. Of course you smile at your wife. Of course you serve your husband. Of course you feed your child. Of course, if you borrow money, you pay it back. Why? Because where do all these rules come from? Krishna. But instead of doing those things the way Karna was doing them, oh, you gave me, I need to give you back. We're doing these things, why? To please Krishna. The whole mood is just to please Krishna. And generally, Krishna's pleased if we do those things. That's why they're called pious. Sometimes Krishna might be pleased if you don't do those things. So the, the mood of the devotee is, I want to please Krishna. Just like Krishna told the wives of the brahmanas and the gopis, practically the identical verse. Go home. Serve your husbands. What are you doing here? And he was very happy when the brahmans' wives followed, and he was very happy when the gopis did not follow. So the question is, to please Krishna. Usually, Krishna wants you to pay your debts. Usually. It would be so embarrassing for Krishna if his devotees went around borrowing money and not paying it back. Right? That would be very embarrassing. Just like if you have children. If your children behave improperly, you feel embarrassed. 
It's one of the things that happens with a parent when their children misbehave. They feel embarrassed. Now, if they're only one year old, that's one thing. But if they're 20 years old, it's embarrassing. If you're a business owner and your employees behave badly, it reflects badly on you. This was happened with Yamaraj and his servants, where he took responsibility for the bad behavior of his servants in arresting a Jamil. So the devotee doesn't want Krishna to look bad. The devotee is trying to please Krishna. You know, materialistic people, they worship God to impress other humans. Just see what a pious person I am. But a devotee is nice to other people to impress Krishna. Krishna, just see how nicely I'm treating your devotees. And a devotee is also naturally grateful and non-envious. So some of the qualities of a sadhu. In fact, there's many places in the Mahabharata and Ramayana where it says the worst thing to be is an ingrate. And of course, Krishna also explains this to the gopis in chapter 32. The worst relationship is that of the ungrateful person. You're getting something from someone, well, I don't have to take care of you, I don't have to pay you back, I can just take. One of Krishna's qualities is that he's very grateful. Krishna is so grateful that Draupadi just says, hey, Govinda, and he's indebted to her for life. I mean, that's extreme gratitude. If someone just calls my name when they're in trouble, I don't feel indebted to them for life. But Krishna does. One little thing. You offer him one cup of water. You offer him one flower. And he's, oh, I'm in your debt. So Krishna's grateful. Therefore, of course, the devotees are grateful. The devotees are not stone-hearted. Also, that Krishna adjusts everything. Somehow or other, in, in the course of serving Krishna, if we're not able to perform ordinary pious duties, Krishna takes care of that. Just like the head of a business if the head of a business gives you some job to do, even if in doing that job somehow the other people are disturbed, the head of the business will adjust that. The president will go and say, well, I told him to do this. You know, that's why he had to cancel the meeting. He had to cancel the meeting because I had, you know, it was for me. And the examples given that if you're the servant of the president, you don't really need to worry about satisfying the governors and the mayors independently. Not that you're rude to them. But if the president gives you some job to do, which means you can't go to your meeting, your scheduled meeting with the mayor, the president will deal with that. The president will say, well, I told him to do that, and that will be all right. And of course, when you serve the Lord, that's the ultimate purpose of repaying debt, because everything that everyone gives us is ultimately coming from the Lord. And our main ingratitude, our main way of being off balance, is that we're not grateful to Krishna. That's really why we're off balance, and that's really why we have this constant feeling in the, in the material world, in a conditioned state, of needing to, to balance things and needing to harmonize. And we have this constant feeling that things aren't right. That when, as soon as we harmonize with Krishna, that immediately takes care of everything else, because everything's within Krishna. So it's really a question of mentality. I mean, ultimately, we see also the material world as a game. Vitrasura said to Indra that this battle between you and me is a game. He said the arrows we're shooting are the pieces, the animals we're riding is the, are the board. And everything we're doing in this world is like that, it's a game. Vitrasura had some a seeming debt to his father to kill Indra, and Indra had some seeming debt to the demigods to kill Vitra, but it was really a game. And really what was going on was quite different than what apparently was going on on the surface. So everything in this world is ultimately a game. I think of it like a big Monopoly game 
with play money. It's not real money. No, when, when I hurt someone else and therefore I have to suffer some karmic reaction, I'm paying with play money. If somebody hurts me and they have to pay me back, they're paying me with play money. None of it is happening to the soul. The soul is simply a witness. All these karmic debts that I get and I give, it's all on the platform of just illusion. It's not real. Therefore, you're allowed to walk away from the game and surrender to the game master. You're allowed to say, Sarva Dharma I'm finished with the game. And you can walk away from the game in the middle. So Daksha's idea and Karna's idea is you can only walk away from the game in the end. What's the problem with that? The game has no end. It never has an end. If you think, first I'm going to pay my debts, guess what happens when you're paying your debts? You get more. You settle things with one person, and then you'll aggravate somebody else. And so we'll keep coming back over and over and over and over. At a certain point, we have to say, I quit the game. Now, what you're not allowed to do, you're not allowed to stay in the game, but break the rules. That you cannot do. That's not allowed. The laws of nature will simply not allow you. If you offend somebody, if you hurt somebody, you take something away from somebody and you don't pay for it, you'll be forced to pay for it by karma. You're not allowed to cheat in this game. There's no cheating allowed. You just don't get away with it. So you can't say, I'm going to stay in the game and break the rules. I'm not really going to surrender to Krishna. I'm sort of going to surrender to Krishna. Or I'm just going to use Krishna as a way not to pay my debts. That, that doesn't work. Krishna doesn't, doesn't agree to this proposal. You know, oh my goodness. I have a huge debt in the Monopoly game. Hey, Krishna, I don't have to pay it, right? He's like, only if you quit the game. And you stay quit. Now you jump back in. If you actually quit, if you really say, I only have to please Krishna, then, all right, the only reason then to pay your debts in the game is to please Krishna, because there's some service, there's some mission. We're no longer paying our debts in the game to find material balance or to think of ourselves as a good person or a pious person or to try to get balance separately from Krishna, which is all the reasons materialists are doing all these things. Our, our only reason to be nice is so Krishna will be pleased. And because we're naturally become nice. It just becomes our default value, being nice. Wouldn't that be nice to have that our default value? Instead of, okay, what am I supposed to do in this situation? Well, I really want to smash that person over the head, but let's see, I'm supposed to please Krishna. Okay. It would be wonderful if we were just spontaneously grateful. If we didn't need the rules of the scriptures. Okay, what does it say in the scriptures? Somebody did this for me, what's the proper yagya? Okay, I guess I have to do that yagya. You know, if we just naturally, if we just naturally and spontaneously wanted to do for others what they do for us, what we would like to have done for us, if we naturally wanted to make all living entities happy, if we naturally found happiness. So that's why the devotees appear to be first-class pious persons. Not because they think, I'm a good, pious person. Or I'm going to control the material energy and find closure and balance on my own as I'm the center of gravity. 
but because it'll make Krishna happy if I do this, generally. And if it will make Krishna happy if I walk away, okay, I walk away. If people praise me as a pious person, okay. If they criticize me as a rascal, okay. As long as Krishna's happy. But of course I want everybody to be happy. I don't want anyone to be in distress. So this is the actual mood of a devotee. So we have a few examples I wanted to meditate on. So the first one is Gopinath Patanayaka. I thought we'd do that first since we're reading from Chaitanya Charitamrita. So Gopinath Patanayaka is one of the sons of... Who's his father? Who's his brother? Father, brother. Give me a father or a brother. Yes, right. Ramananda Roy is his brother and Bhavananda Roy is his father. And they were all working for the government. So Gopinath Patanayaka was a tax collector. Formally, the way you were a tax collector is you collected taxes in an area. People paid only local taxes. So people paid local taxes. And then the local tax collector gave a portion of that to the greater place, which gave a portion of that to the greater place. And at each step, the tax collector kept some of the money as their salary. The way we do it now, at least in most countries of the world, the tax collector gives everything to the government, and then the government pays them a salary that is not connected to the amount of taxes that they collect. So if you're collecting in an area where people are poor or you're collecting in a rich area, both the tax collectors nowadays get paid the same salary, but used to be that you would get a com- you took a commission. So it was argued that Gopinath Patanayaka had taken more than his commission. He had taken 200,000-somethings, kana-somethings, whatever they were, more than his commission. And it was such a lot of money that Prabhupada said even if he sold everything in his possession, he couldn't have paid it back. It was a huge sum of money that he had misappropriated. We're not actually sure from the story if he misappropriated it or not, but he was accused of misappropriating it. So he, he didn't argue. He didn't say that he hadn't. He said, yes, yes, I owe this money. He said, I don't have the money. Would you take these very fine horses that I have and up as a, uh, what do you call it, partial payment, and I'll pay you the rest as I can gradually. Right, so that's one way to pay a debt. So when he did that, the king's son didn't like Gopinath Patanayaka. They had a thing between them. And so the son said, well, I don't think the horses are worth as much as you say they are. And Gopinath Patanayaka said, well, at least they don't look up at the sky all the time, which is what the prince did. He had this habit of kind of looking around. You know, and then the prince was really offended and he went to his father, and he said, Gopinath Patanayaka has this debt, he's not paying it, what should I do? And the king said, well, whatever, you, you use your own judgment. Whatever you do, just get the money back. So the son then felt he had carte blanche, and so he put Gopinath Patanayaka on a platform with vertical swords underneath the platform. This was one execution method used at that time, very painful execution method. And he said, you don't pay this money, we're going to throw you on the swords. Woo! So Gopinath Patanayaka had a lot of friends in Puri. And one of his friends was, of course, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who was friends with the whole family. So three, I think three times, people came to see Lord Chaitanya and said, Gopinath Patanayaka is going to be thrown on the swords. Ha! You're going to do something about this. And he's like, what? I'm a sannyasi. I don't have anything to do with this. It's not my business. I don't get involved in political affairs. If Gopinath Patanayaka is taking government money, he should pay it. You know? 
So three times they came and they were all upset. And then someone went to the king and told the king, oh, the last time they went to Lord Chaitanya, finally he said, why don't you just pray to Jagannath? He said, Jagannath, the Lord of the universe, he can do and undo anything. You know, if there's a problem, go to Jagannath. So one, one person went back to the king and said, Gopinath Patanayaka is about to be executed. And he said, I didn't want him executed, I just wanted the money. He said, get him off the platform. Right? So he took him off the platform and, and settled everything. And, you know, he talked to Gopinath Patanayaka, okay, we'll just take the horses and gradually pay your debts and don't do this again. Meanwhile, Lord Chaitanya talks to Kasi Mizra and he said, I'm really disturbed. He said, here I'm a sannyasi trying to just do bhajan and not be involved in politics. And three times today, somebody ran to me with political issues, asking me to be involved. And my bhajan is completely disturbed. He said, I don't have anything to do with this. People have to be honest and pay their money to the government and they not steal. And, you know, why should I be involved in this? He said, you know, if people are going to be involving me in political things, and then I'm not going to stay here anymore. I'm going to go to uh, Alalanath. And Kashmir said, no, 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 no. He said, Gopinath Padanayak, they weren't sending for you. You know, it was other people who were coming. It wasn't them. Okay. Then Kashmir talks to the king. And he says, um, I heard that, that Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu wants to leave Jagannath Puri. Oh, why is that? Because he was so disturbed over this whole issue. Oh. Well, well, well we didn't want to disturb him. I'll, I'll excuse the whole debt. Just out. No, no, no. Mahaprabhu doesn't want you to excuse the debt. But I, I'll tell him I'll excuse the debt just because Baba Nandaroy and his family are my friends, not having anything to do with Lord Chaitanya. Okay. So Kashmishri goes back and tells Lord Chaitanya, so the king's going to excuse the debt. He said, I didn't want him to excuse the debt. I wanted my devotee to pay the debt. I don't want my devotees not to pay their debts. This is not good. No, no, he didn't do it because of you. He did it because he's friends with the family and he loves the family. Also, all the family had been arrested. All the members of the family had been arrested. So Mahaprabhu asked Kashyamistra, what was Bhavananda Roy doing when he was in prison? And Kashyamistra said he was incessantly chanting, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare. Mahaprabhu said, oh, very nice. So then Maharaj Pradipurudra, not only does he forgive Gopinath Patanayaka of the debt, he doubles his salary, he says, the fact that you took this money must mean that I'm not paying you enough. So I'm going to double your salary and I'm going to raise your position. So he gave him some kind of a silk cloth to show that he had now a higher status in the government. So he raised his status, doubled his salary and excused his debt. So the whole family above and under came to see Mahaprabhu. And Gopinath Patanayaka said, My dear Lord, I, I, didn't, I never wanted anything material from you. I simply want to serve you and, and love you. And Krishna's Kaviraj is saying, it Just by informing Mahaprabhu this would happen, uh, just imagine the position of the devotees. So it's one example of where, even on the external level, all of one's debts are cleared. Another example, of course, is in Chaitanya Lila's Madhai, that Madhai was a great criminal, Jaghai and Madhai. It said that they engaged in every sinful activity except for blaspheming Vaishnavas. So that means they were murdering, raping, arson, everything. And they tried to kill Lord Nityananda, especially Mana tried to kill Lord Nityananda. But after Chaitanya Mahaprabhu accepted them, then they no longer were considered as having to suffer. So it's not that they surrendered to Lord Chaitanya, and Lord Chaitanya said, all right, 
Where's the police force? Arrest them, put them in jail, execute them. I mean, they had done crimes that would be worthy of the death penalty. But they, they, weren't, they didn't have any consequence whatsoever. In fact, Mahaprabhu's body became dark, taking on all the sinful reactions of Jodhaya Mada. But what's interesting is that later on, Madai approached Lord Nityananda, and he said, I don't feel peaceful. And Lord Nityananda said, well, what's the problem? Everything's settled, all the counts are settled. And he said, but I don't feel peaceful. He said, I've hurt so many people, and because I was intoxicated when I hurt them, I don't even remember who I hurt, so I can't even go and fix anything. So, you know what Lord Nityananda told him to do? Anybody know? Yes? To, uh, to clean the gods. To clean the god, and actually to build the god also. Just to serve the devotees, to somehow or other serve the devotees. And then not only was Madhai peaceful, but everyone else was peaceful. Two examples from the Bhagavatam, both in the ninth canto and both having to deal with the sister. So there was one king, Nimi, and Nimai wanted to do a yagya. And his guru was Vasista. He said to Vasista, please come and do my yagya. And Vasista said, well, I'm going to do Indra's yagya. When I finish, I'll do your yagya. Now, doing Indra's yagya might take a very long time in earth time. And Nimai thought, life is uncertain if I wait for Vasista to come back. He didn't say anything to Vasista. He was silent, but he thought, if I wait for Vasista, I may be waiting forever. I may die first and not do my yagya. So he engaged another priest. And when Vasista came back, Vasista was his guru. When Vasista came back and saw that Nimai had gone on without him, he cursed Nimai to die. May you die immediately. And Nimai counter-cursed him, may you die immediately. So they both died. And uh, Vasista took birth again and, and came back. But Nimi didn't. And Nimai uh, attained a spiritual form. And after that, the demigods and the sages were doing a yagya which would allow Nimi to again have a material body, but he refused. He said, I don't want to have another material body. I'm very happy to be in my spiritual form. So that's very interesting that although on the external level, his guru cursed him, and he was in debt to his guru because he completely surrendered to Krishna, he did not have to fulfill that curse. So it was, he didn't get any, any ill consequences from that curse. Another example with Vasista is Prasada. So Prasada was guarding the cows at night. That was his job, guarding the cows. And one night when it was very dark, when there were clouds covering the moon and stars, he couldn't see very well, he heard a tiger attacking Goshal, and he took out his sword and killed the tiger. But no, he didn't kill the tiger. What did he kill? A cow. He also cut the ear of the tiger, which frightened the tiger when the tiger left. And in the morning he saw he killed a cow. So the sister cursed him. What was that curse? Anybody remember? It's the curse. Cursed him. You will have to take birth as a shudra in your next life. But you know what? Prasiddha didn't have a next life. So he completely surrendered to Krishna. He renounced the world, dedicated himself fully to Krishna, and went back to home, back to God. So he didn't have to take another birth, what to speak of a shudra birth. So whenever we get any good or bad from anybody... Whenever we get good or bad from anyone, we can think this is really coming from Krishna. So I always tell that story. I think I've told it here of how I wanted a certain sari and somebody gave it to me. Have I told that here? I was looking in my closet and I thought, I'd like to have one more silk sari and I'd like it to be thick 
beige with an embroidered border, and I could buy it in India. It would cost me about forty dollars. Oh, I don't really need another sari. Forty dollars is a lot of money for a sari. Forget it. I don't need it. That was my twenty-second phone. Three days later, somebody just came up to me and said, "Oh, I have a present for you," and handed me that sari as as if I had custom ordered it from a tailor. I mean, it was exactly the picture in my mind, and I can understand that it was from Krishna. Now, do you think I also thanked her? Did I say thank you to her? Of course. I didn't say to her, well, that was just from Krishna. <laughs> I mean, when she gave it to me, I started crying. I was like, Krishna, I'm sorry, I had a material desire. But I also thanked her. Huh? Yes? Yes? Now, uh, Prabhupada says that it's easy for us to do this when the nice thing comes. You know, somebody gives you 10,000 euros right when you needed it to fix the goshal or something like that. Oh, it's Krishna. But Krishna's also doing the bad things. So just like we thank Krishna for the good things, we thank Krishna for the bad things. And when the bad things happen, I mean, we may have to report something to police or something like that. Uh, but we don't consider that I have to rectify things with that person in order to achieve material balance. I didn't feel a material debt to that devotee who gave me the sari. I can understand it's Krishna. So naturally I wanted to thank her, and it would please Krishna to thank her. So, you know, if somebody sets fire to my house, the natural thing to do is you have to call the police. And you want things to be settled, but you're not thinking, I need vengeance. I need to get vengeance in order to feel balanced. So the devotee, whether somebody gives us good things or someone gives us bad things, we don't try to balance things with that person for the sake of finding closure and balance in the world. But we say, what would Krishna like me to do? What would please Krishna? Ultimately, this is coming from Krishna, the good things and the bad things. And we connect with Krishna, and we're grateful to Krishna for both the good things and the bad things, for the people who do wonderful things to us and the people who do terrible things to us. That in both ways we can learn some lesson. And how does Krishna want me to deal with this person? What would please Krishna? And the only time that we don't have to have any reciprocation with society is if we don't take anything at all from society, if we live as avadutas. So like uh, Maharaj Rishabdev, Jed Bharat, at the end of his life, Maharaj Yudhisthira, they took nothing from society. Nothing. They were, they were living completely outside of society. So they didn't even speak to anyone. They didn't have any interactions with anyone. As Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, one has no need to depend on any other living being. So it wasn't that they were cold-hearted, it's that they were Atmarama and Atakama. They were connected with Krishna within, and therefore they didn't interact externally. Sometimes that's the case also when a person is in ecstatic trance, like Lord Shiva with Daksha, or Shamakavichi with uh, Maharaj Brikit, and they're not considered to be beholden to anybody uh, in the normal course of events. But other than that, other than if we're in an ecstatic trance and actually being participating in the spiritual world within our heart, and therefore we don't even notice that anybody's asking us for water, or we don't even notice that our spiritual master has entered the room or our father-in-law has entered the room. Other than that, if we are interacting with society to please Krishna, we should behave as, as normal ladies and gentlemen. Right? But we need to let go of this desire that Karna had. 
The main thing we need to give up here is not necessarily the external behaviors. Now, sometimes we may give up the external behaviors and externally even not follow through on some debt in some unusual circumstances. But the main thing that we give up is this feeling that I have to settle everything in this world. I have to have closure. I have to find material balance. Because that's one of the main things that's pushing us to take birth again and again and again and again and again. Just like Ambo. Oh, Bhishma was the reason that I couldn't marry. Let me kill him. I'll take birth again and again and again to have a body so I can kill him. What a fool. Eventually, she, he, is Shikanti, was able to achieve that. But what everyone finds at the end is that when they do that, there's not peace anyway. And there's not balance anyway. The person who murdered your kid gets executed. What do you feel? Nothing. We don't find the peace and the closure in that way. You don't even find it by repaying the good things. To some extent, a little bit, for a moment, but not the full balance and harmony that we seek. So that we need to jettison. This concept that I am the doer, that it is my business by my power to find peace and closure and balance by hurting those who hurt me and being grateful to those who are, who are good to me. You know, I need to be able to, to come out basically as the center of gravity. But to take that very good and spiritual and worthy and eternal desire for balance and harmony, which is part of ourself, and find it genuinely in Krishna. And when we find it genuinely in Krishna, we will automatically know what to do. Because automatically, our relationship with everything else will be balanced. I won't have to do it separately. And it won't be agonizing, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? There won't be any agony. Because when I have that, when, I, when I'm actually situated at Krishna's lotus feet here, right? Saranam saranyam. When I really surrender to Krishna's lotus feet, I become balanced. If we go through all the descriptions in the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavatam, Chaitanya Charitamrita, the qualities of a devotee, you'll find almost all of them talk about balance. Unaffected by happiness and distress, heat and cold, honor and dishonor, equal to friends and enemies, not disturbed by the ordinary course of activities, not attached to the auspicious and the inauspicious, right? And maybe you can take a little time today, it only takes five minutes, and, and look that up. Look up in the second chapter, twelfth chapter. 14th chapter. How does Krishna describe what are the symptoms of one who's become surrendered? And you'll see almost all of them balance, 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 equipoise, 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 equipoise. So when you surrender to Krishna, you don't need to find balance by doing anything else. You're no longer grateful to find balance. You're no longer vengeful to find balance. You're not pious to find balance. You don't feel that things are off kilter. I owe so many. You don't feel like that anymore. You feel balanced. And then one knows what to do. Oh, I've offended a devotee? Oh, Krishna will be pleased if I rectify that offense. Not to find balance. I already have balance. But Krishna will be pleased if I rectify that offense. That's my duty to Krishna. 
Oh, someone's helped me. Krishna will be pleased if I if I say thank you, if I reciprocate, if I help others. Not because I need you to find balance. I already have balance. But to please Krishna. Somebody's burned down my house. Krishna will be pleased if I report them to the police. He doesn't want arsonists running around the society. But not to protect myself because I'm already protected. And then we'll know what one what we'll know what to do. Should I be married? Should I be renounced? Should I go to school? Should I not go to school? Should I work at a job? Should I just live in the temple? One will know. One will get guidance. It will, will naturally be there. So this is the way to come to the center of gravity, and then everything else is balanced. Thank you. This was a difficult topic. I'm sure we could talk about it at much greater length for a much longer time. Questions, comments? Yes. I think the, uh, in my perception, we also can situate it uh, historically when the devotees acted like giving up everything. You know, when you should, should probably coming in. I mean, the times were also arranged completely differently. Everything was different at the time. And Prabhupada comes with this tsunami of Krishna consciousness. So it's naturally that, you know, people will give up everything and just go with Prabhupada. Whereas now, as you described, we have to come to a balance, we have to maintain our projects. Oh, you could, you could say that. If you want to analyze the development of ISKCON from a historical, sociological perspective, then you could certainly say that at the beginning of, of starting a new movement that much a different kind of sacrifice is required, and that at this point we're setting up a society, and setting up a society requires something different. And it would no longer even be appropriate in trying to set up a society to ask everyone in the world to move into the ashram. We wouldn't even have rooms to put them. So that's also that's also a, a, that's another lens through which you can look at it. But I see I see both are both are are there. But thank you. That's a, that is a valid historical and sociological lens. That's also correct. And about karma, karma seems to me like I mean like very unfortunate person because. Like when you have Hiranyakashipu and, and, and big demons, they end up in the past times of Lord Chaitanya, but you never hear about Karna. You don't hear about Karna in the past times. That's interesting, like, interesting fact. All you hear about him is going to the sun planet after death. But I see that Karna, Karna's situation is a situation of really any of us who are not fully surrendered. We're all doing that to some extent. We're saying, Krishna, I can't fully surrender because I have some other important business. And, and Karna's argument is the reason why we all take birth over and over again. Because we're only forced by the laws of nature when we want to play the game. We're not forced by the laws of nature when we don't want to play the game. We're not forced to play the game. We, we are not forced to be an illusion. But, but once we desire to be an illusion, we have to play by the rules of illusion. So the reason we're taking birth over and over again is, and getting our karma is ultimately because we want to. Therefore, Prabhupada says the unhappy materialist can get out of the material world simply by desiring to do so. So that, that this desire to see how the game, game ends, to see who wins, to end it, and be the winner, is, is what keeps us here. And, and therefore, we're, we all, all of us who are not fully surrendered are doing what Karna is doing. Maybe not entirely, but we're doing it at least partially. It's, it's quite lamentable. Yes. But, uh, but wasn't Karna doing, uh, doing his duty as per Krishna's list? Because he was detached to all the... Uh, even though he had everything, he had the 
even his own the protection gear that he had he gave it to Mm, that's a very good question. Why did Krishna, why did Karna give up his armor and earrings? Did he give it up to please Krishna? What was his motive? I think uh, he, he uh, I think he was detached. I, I don't know. Uh, well, he was detached from something. He was detached from pain, and he was detached from life and death. But what was he attached to? He was prestige. I am such a great and charitable person. that I will give my life and my armor for truth. That was his motive. And if you say, did he please Krishna? Krishna came right in front of him. There wasn't any ambiguity about it. I mean, of course, sometimes Krishna's tricky and says something when he means something else. I mean, that is true. But let's not go there because that's not relevant to this. Leela. Like Krishna tells the gopis, go home, and he didn't mean it. So, sometimes, there are sometimes, when Krishna says something, and he, it's, it's, there's some play going on there. Yeah. We even do that in our... But no, Krishna was right, he was right up front, and, and, and he was right there. There, was, there wasn't any ambiguity at all. I mean, if Gopinath were to come off the altar... and sit down there next to you and say, this is what I'd like you to do today, and you say, well, I think I'm going to do something else to please you, that wouldn't make any sense, would it? <clears throat> that, that, that doesn't make sense. You know, Krishna's right there and says to you, you know, if, if you're right there with someone and you say, what would you like? the kitri or the halva and they say I'd like the kitri and you say well I think you'd like the halva <laughs> so in that case it was it was there was no question of of not being sure we don't usually have it quite that unambiguous we don't usually have that krishna you know walks into our room and sits down and says This is what I'd like you to do today. You know, it's not usually quite that clear, but for Karnit it was. Thank you very much. Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai.